everybody have this IAS laughter event on our comic books. Um, I'm Andrew Dean, I'm one of the junior research fellows in, in laughter, um, which is a kind of how, for me anyway, I'm just treating it as a house become funny um, <laughs> two-year fellowship. Um, without much success so far, uh, <laughs> but there's still time. So this is, one of, this is one of many events that we are holding this year, and it's the second that we've held on comics. The first one was with the Malaysian cartoonist, Zuna, political cartoonist. Um, so this one is, is going, to be, uh, going to be primarily about the UK, all of our speakers are, are British. Um, right, just, this, is, this, this month basically we have, with well, this uh, academic term, we have um, a large number of events um, which have been helpfully uh, moving slowly across on this enormous screen. Um, so the, we, today we have comic books and laughter, we have Jeremy Dorber who's a, a professor at Columbia who will be speaking about Jewish comedy. We have David Schneider who is the writer of um, The Death of Stalin in conversation with Deborah Baum on the 15th of May. Uh, we have laughter that silences the law, is that right? Okay. Uh, yes, which is a Laura, Mo Laura Murphy, Nina uh, Power, Karim John on yeah. the 17th of May. Uh, to discuss laughter, heteronomies, and psychoanalysis. So this is that. And then there are two screenings of A Question of Silence by Marlene Gorris on May 14th and May 17th before the panel. And you're all welcome to come. In fact, I'd positively encourage you to. So look at our website and sign up. Um, and we have another couple of events after that as well, including one that's yet to be announced, which is the video art group, The Rimmers, um, who will be coming on the 5th of June. Um, now, very uh, helpfully for me, um, my good friend and colleague Dominic Davies has basically put this uh, panel together and, and organised uh, the discussion, so I'm not going to say too much. Um, it'd be difficult for me to stand away from the lecture, and obviously, but I will allow, allow space in the next two hours for that to happen. Um, but I'll just introduce Dom, who will then introduce the panel. So Dom is uh, one of those terrifying academics who has published um, two single author books and and three edited books in the space of five years. Is that right? The edited book is the third one. Okay, the third one's not out yet, so that makes it okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the 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 PhD, his PhD thesis, which became his first book, was called Planned Violence: Postcolonial Urban Infrastructure, Literature and Culture. No, sorry, Imperial Infrastructure, Spatial Resistance, and Colonial Literature. That's right, out of Peter Lamb. Um, and his uh, British Academy funded project, which followed immediately on from having finished his PhD, was um, was on comics in South Africa, is that right? Uh, urban comics across the global south. Urban comics across the global south, okay. Um, and the, the book that's coming out of that is called Urban Comics, Infrastructure in the Global City and Contemporary Graphic Narratives. That's out of Routledge this year. Um, so I strongly advise you all to um, Purchase as many copies as you can possibly afford, uh, and to tell, <laughs> tell your libraries that, that they must have at least six copies each. Um, and I'm very excited about the book, uh, the, the forthcoming book. Yeah. Um, so I'll allow Dom now the space to speak for himself. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to be really, really quick, uh, and just really introduce the panel, and then maybe just tell you one thing for two minutes um, that might get some. Ideas going. Uh, I think I told. Well, when Andrew asked me to uh, organise this panel on comics and comedy or comics and laughter, 
I thought three people and emailed them and they all said yes straight away, which is wonderful. Uh, and I'm going to introduce them and they're all going to bring uh, very, very different perspectives to this issue. I think it, we're going to get a nice sort of whole uh, from, those, from those different angles. So I'll start on the left. I've asked, we've sort of been asked, I don't know, we said like seven minutes, you could have 10. 40. 40, <laughs> somewhere, you know, we've got, we've got a lot of time and if wine arrives and we're still having a conversation, we can just get some wine and, uh, and carry on. Uh, so we'll go in the order that I'll introduce them here. So uh, Roger Sabin is Professor of Popular Culture at the University of the Arts, London. Uh, he's written several field-defining books about comics, as in comic books, as, as Roger likes to specify, including adult comics and comics, comics of an X and graphic novels. Um, as well as several books in sort of related areas of fanzine and punk rock subcultures. Uh, most recently, he's the editor with Simon Grennan and Julian Way of a book celebrating the life and work of uh, Marie Duval, a groundbreaking Victorian female cartoonist. Uh, and last but not least, he's also the co-editor of Palgrave Bookman's new book series, Palgrave Studies in Comics and Graphic Novels, which is specifically designed to promote and advance the field of comic studies uh, as the website says, with a capital C and a capital <laughs> S, and it's doing a fantastic job in doing that, and I strongly men, uh, recommend checking out that series. There are some very good editor collections already published and forthcoming <laughs> uh, with, that, with that series. Uh, Nicola Streetham, uh, self-described as a speaker, writer, and drawer of comics. She's both an academic and an artist. Um, in 1995, after the death of her child, she turned to drawing and the cartoon style she developed led to a, a kind of career in illustration. And really her, her first graphic memoir, Billy, Me and You, which was published in, in 2011, which is sort of about a process of a bereavement, which is also extremely funny. I think we're probably going to hear something a little bit about that um, today. Uh, Nicola also co-founded the International Forum Ladies Do Comics in 2009, and she continues to to co-direct that, and she launched the first Women's Prize for graphic novels in 2018. She also very recently completed a PhD on feminist cartoons and comics in Britain, and uh, relatedly is the co-editor of The Inking Woman, which is the kind of first documented history of, of women's cartooning in Britain. And I'm going to give a shout out to the Ladies Do Comic Weekend Festival, which takes place... Lost. Oh, took place. <laughs> took place last month. Worth giving it a shot. Um, but next year, I'm sure it's great. Uh, and maybe Nicola will tell you about that. Uh, and you can all put it in your diaries for next year. And then finally, uh, Nina McRitz is actually in contextual studies at London College of Communication, uh, uh, which is part of the University of Arts London. And she's the author of the really uh, incredible book, Documentary Comics Graphic Truth Telling in a Skeptical. Age, which kind of explores the remarkable synergies between comics and documentary and form. Um, <coughs> Nina and I definitely share an interest in the use of comics to sort of further all kinds of sort of social justice movements, I suppose. Uh, and Nina's particularly interested in the contested boundaries between fact and fiction and the way that these are addressed in comics. And her current research interests include the kind of formation of social identities through comics and in particular the development of transnational networks of, of comics work. So I promise I'm going to sit down very, very soon, but I thought I'd just start with this. Uh, how do I make it physical? Oh yeah, a 
I thought I'd just start with this comic. It's a, a comics page by a French uh, artist, Pascal Judas Dusselin, from his comic Invincible. I don't know if you can see it. Can you work it out? I'll give you a moment to take a look at it. Basically, for those of you who can't see, the superhero Invincible here is mopping the floor, and he spots five panels in the future. You know, this evil bad guy come to, to sort of you know, capture him with his robots. And so he starts breaking the, the fourth wall of the comics frame uh, and defeats the robots through the interventions from the past, into the future, into this kind of spatial milieu, if you like. And eventually, the bad guy thinks he's got away by dodging the two things here, and then off he runs, and here he is running away, and then he's already, the past self of Invincible has already defeated the, the future uh, bad guy's flight. Uh, and really, I just, this for me sort of sums up the spatial grammar of, of comics uh, and the way in which sort of time has to be represented spatially on the page, and so time can be, funny things can be done with with time in comics. We, we sort of have a basic narrative structure, um, and you know, thinking about the narrative structure of jokes or, or, or laughter, they're often oriented towards a punchline, which is entirely predicated on a very sort of linear, uh, progressive, you know, a sudden reveal, if you like. But actually, comics can, of course, play with sudden reveals, but there's this, uh, there's a different uh, way of, of navigating uh, comedy and particularly jokes uh, through the through the form of the comics page, which is you know arguably kind of unique or or something very particular about comics in the way that that, that takes place. So that's just one little example to get us going. And I'll hand over to Roger to kick us off. Thank you very that's much. Okay. Um, How do I flip the uh, thing? Yeah. I do that with the... Just that, yeah. Show me the thing? Just the right one. Okay. And then I, I, I point it at the screen. Yeah. All right, then. Um, well, thank you very much. Yes, I mean, I'm going to use my seven minutes to talk about um, history and the origins of uh, comics, really, or at least the origins of them as a, as a commercial concern at the end of the 19th century. And the reason I want to do that is because it provoked uh, a huge discussion about the nature of comedy and the nature of pop culture. So uh, I'll get to that in, in just a minute. I'm going to, this is naturally going to be quite speedy because we haven't got much time. But um, all right, so the end of the 19th century, we now think, historians now think of it as the first great age of leisure. So for example, working class people had more disposable income, they had more time. This was the era of um, organised sport coming into its own thing. The big football clubs were formed in that, that period. Uh, you had hobbies or habits, if you like, like smoking taken off. You had uh, music hall culture, trips to the seaside. Uh, what else? And, and the growth of the penny press as well. So all this combines to create this first great age of leisure. And it is supported by the expansion of the railways, which open up the country open up the empire, 
and mean that the economics of entertainment become viable, uh, really, for the first time. So, so this is a, a sort of an interesting uh, period. So the music halls are central to this, and there are two periods of growth, 1850s, 60s, 1880s, 1890s, and there are other venues for comedy, obviously, as well, things like circuses, penny gaffs, fairs, and so on and so forth. But the music halls are central to what I want to say. So you had the rise of the turns system. So this is a, a musical bill, Dundee musical, and you can see that variety is the thing that keeps people entertained. So on this bill, you will see, I haven't got the right glasses on, that there are dancers, animal acts, musical acts, and comedians, lots and lots of comedians. Okay, so the variety system develops in the, in the halls. Because there's a network of halls, people can do 20 minutes at one hall and then can scoot across town and do 20 minutes at another hall and they can make a living from it. All right, so you can make your living as a comedian. It's pretty much the same system now, actually, if you're into uh, comedy. And you get the rise of star turns. So, you know, the late 19th century into the early 20th century, uh, Dan, that's Dan Leno, who was the huge comedian. Uh, when he died, the, they estimate that 200,000 people turned out to follow his coffin through the streets. Yeah, amazing figure. And on the right there, that's Marie Lloyd, who was also a comedian, but she was famous for very rude um, songs, which I won't perform for you. <laughs> um, so, at the same time as all this is happening, uh, you get... Uh, the growth of the comic book in this country, really for the first time. And they look like this. Um, they're sort of newspaper size, really. Uh, and there's a lot of them, and they're priced between really a penny and halfpenny is standard sort of pricing for them. Uh, the leader of the pack, well, really the, or the origin point is this comic, uh, Ali Sloper's Half Holiday, and it's based on a character called Ali Sloper, who slopes down the alleyway to avoid the rent collector. Okay, and that's, that's him there, dressed as a Scottish lord. Anyway, so this is an important comic, and it gives rise to the other ones. And what I'm talking about is a period that's after Punch, uh, primarily aimed at adults, primarily working-class people, primarily young men, and they're made up of a mix of things, okay? Strips, cartoons, etc., etc. All right, then. So, and they borrow comedy from the musical. So there's lots of falling over, lots of strips about, you know, uh, water, in, water in the face, custard pies, this kind of stuff. Uh, lots of stick. And they borrow comedy types. So that's Ali Sloper on the left there getting completely drunk. And these are a pair of uh, tramps who exist in uh, a comic called Illustrated Chips. So there are crossovers everywhere. There's the same writers are doing the same, you know, the same material for the halls and the comics. Even the design of the comics is affected by the, the turns system. So you will have your star turn on the cover, Ali Sloper, and then you'll have the supporting characters inside. So, it, you know, it's, it's a synergy, basically. And the comics feature actual comedians. This is Ali Sloper interviewing a real-life comedian called uh, George Roby. And they have little sections at the back where they feature uh, performers. And there the characters themselves in the comics become musical stars. So Sloper was in, imitated by uh, performers and by ventriloquists and this sort of thing. 
And eventually, the comedians themselves become the stars of their own comics. So Dan Lino, who I mentioned earlier, had a very successful comic. I don't think Marie Lloyd ever had one. Uh, but it, later on, uh, Chaplin takes over. So Chaplin is really the heir to uh, Ali Sloper. He becomes the comedy superstar of the day after Sloper. So when I talked about the big discussion that this provokes at the beginning, um, what I mean is this. It's, it's all about the role of leisure. And you have to remember that big ideas are in the air, including uh, socialist ideas at this time. So the negative response to all this, I, I mean, to be really simplistic about it, is multi-layered, but it, things like this, you know, the idea that it's going to destroy the, uh, the empire. How can, how can you run an empire if people are reading this rubbish or going to the music hall? You know, it's, it's provoking skiving off work, hedonism, drunkenness, lechery. Some of the comics featured uh, pin-ups of the female, the female performers uh, and that sort of thing. It's just destroying the ability to read. If you're, if you're into a visual form, you know, you're, you're going to lose the ability to read. Slapstick is low comedy compared to satire, the satire tradition that people have been used to, or at least this is what the middle class critics were saying. And also, these things are bringing vulgar comedy into the home. You know, that's, that's a big fear as well. It's actually invading people's private space. The final thing on there is that some critics were saying, is this about the working class finding its voice through comedy? And that was really troubling. And there was a, a railway strike in 1893 where the strikers wore masks that were in the shape of Ali Sloper. So they had cardboard masks like Ali Sloper, and that's very like the, the Occupy movement. I don't know if you remember the, the V masks. And so that, that really quite scared people, so, you know, what is going on here? And you have to remember that, you know, some European countries have experienced huge unrest, verging on revolution. So, that's the negative side of it. But on the positive side, other people, middle class critics, intellectuals, were saying that actually these characters in these comics, they might be pretty rough, you know, they might drink a lot. But actually they're loyal, they're loyal to the Queen, and they're actually, these people are the backbone of the end. This is great. They're, they're, they're actually something to celebrate. And also the comics are a safety valve. They're not, they're not generating bad behaviour or you know, revolutionary ideas. They're actually a place where people can, can uh, let themselves go. And finally, the idea that it's actually other things that lead to uh, bad behaviour and not the comics. You know, socialist uh, commentators are saying it's, it's all about poverty. Uh, and, not, and not the musical or the comics at all. So you had that going on. And that sort of coalesces into an idea, uh, which is kind of summed up by this critic, who's very important, actually, is Elizabeth Pennell. This is an early review, 1886. But she says that, you know, this, this country was obsessed by the Italian tradition of clown, the, the Commedia dell'arte uh, clowns. Uh, but now we've got these comedy stars of our own to follow. So she romanticizes all this, and she says that this is a, a new vernacular, this is the voice of the people, and this is a, a very uh, uh, positive thing. And that later on, that gets used for nationalist uh, ends as well. I haven't got time to talk about that. I've already overrun. Um, so, no, no, I, I have overrun by three minutes. So, uh, yes. So my conclusion is this, I, I would contend that this period is very, very important because uh, in the battle over the meaning of what's going on, 
in the halls and in the comics? Um, it's the origins, really, of pop cultural theory. You know, the debates that were happening then anticipate uh, debates in the 70s, even, you know, cultural studies debates. And also the idea of an English or British uh, sense of humour as well. And this is something that Elizabeth Pennell really puts her finger on. Uh, again, very controversial, obviously, but uh, interesting that it begins uh, in this period. So uh, that's my talk, and uh, it's all about you know the importance of, uh, of what happened uh, in the late Victorian period. You can have a look at this, at this later on if you want. Thank you. Stand up. Yeah, of course. And um, because my notes are all upstairs. I have your notes. So, um, uh, I was introduced by John, thank you, uh, so that you know who I am. But I, actually, I, I'm not going to talk about Billy Me and You. That's my graphic novel. But so I was going to, uh, I've called my talk The Uncelebrated Role of Larp and Cartoons in Feminist Activism. So my PhD was looking at uh, feminist cartoons and comics. And this is the book, Inky Woman, that Dom referred to. And it's lovely to see several of the cartoonists featured in the book are here today. So that's nice. Thank you for coming. Uh, right? Seven minutes you starting? Can take as long as you <laughs> I mean, if you start going to that 20 minutes, then maybe I'll. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so uh, <coughs> I was uh, thinking back to the beginning of my PhD, and I was going to start with this a kind of uh, academic crush that we all have of, uh, on Sarah Ahmed. So if you haven't read her work and you're an academic, you will love it, won't you? I'm looking at Emma because I know you feel the same. So I started with this book she wrote called The Promise of Happiness, and she wrote about how. Um, basically, she calls herself a feminist killjoy, and she has this brilliant blog. And um, that intrigued me, because my starting point was, why is there an association with a feminist as humourless, when my own experience of the feminists, they're a funny bunch. So um, that was what my starting point of my PhD. So she says about happiness, this culture, and we all are familiar with this. We read in the Sunday newspapers this... Uh, recent research proves how we could be happy, and often in the in the, the gauging of it is marriage. So it's it becomes rather than if happy people apparently are married, it suddenly becomes muddled up. So we start to believe that heterosexual marriage is the cause of happiness. So it becomes this complicated system going on. <clears throat> and what Ahmed was saying was what happens if you don't share this assumed route to happiness? So for example, what if you're lesbian or gay or if you're not in a heterosexual couple and not married, what happens then? Does that mean you can't be happy? It's this way of thinking. And um, of course that includes often uh, the feminists. So what happens if you question that? If you question, hang on, is heterosexual marriage the route to happiness? Hang on. And if you're questioning it that, she says there's this, what goes on is this, oh, the feminists are just jealous because they can't find a husband. So that's their, you know, that's why 
we, these women are becoming feminists. And so she referenced this book, which was in 2005, but the blog is still going. And this is Darla Shine's Happy Housewives Club. And that's even today, that is kind of celebrates the joys of being a housewife and caring for your children and doing domestic bliss. And she, in this book, uh, Darla Shine says to the feminists, grow up, shut up, count your blessings. And this, this idea that, that again, that reinforced that feminists are envious happiness failures. Because they failed in the route to happiness uh, they had to be feminists, that's the reason. And what intrigued me was when I started looking at cartoons, these are the anti-suffrage cartoons uh, that were coming out um, at the time of the suffragettes, which was a huge, of course, a huge threat to social order, and it's this origin and development of suffragettes. At 15, a little pet. At 20, a little coquette. At 14, not yet married yet. At 50, a suffragette. So again, it's this conflation with uh, if you can't get married, then you have to become a suffragette. So this strange carrying on has gone wrong. And then down with man, husbands for old age. But what I was looking at was the visual depiction. These women, the early suffragettes, as with second wave feminists, as, then there is an anger as part of the makeup of feminists, but it's, it's how it's visually displayed as ugly. So the anger of feminism is, is an ugliness. And what that becomes conflated with, I noticed, is humorless. So the drawings of these by the anti-suffrage uh, anti cartoonists were drawing the feminists as downturned mouths with frowns. So, um, and of course, you know, so that's one thing. But <clears throat> what, um, what uh, what's her name, Shyam Nagai talks about is also and what I was intrigued about, this persistent stereotype of a humorless, angry feminist. And what the guy talks about is, it's not about anger as um, unadulterated, it's because that would be a grand passion. It's this anger mixed with envy. And that makes it not so nice. It impurifies it and lowers it as a form of anger. So then again, uh, oh, Second wave feminism comes along in the 70s, and again this stereotype re-emerges. The angry feminist is uh, again ugly, you know, this, this downturn now. So in this cartoon, uh, Bernard Cookson, what did you criticise, Harry? Soup of the day or the women's rights bill? And we see the woman marching out. And she's not a beautiful, pin-up, sexy lady marching out. Uh, so it's again anger as ugly and ugly as humorous, this connection. So we've got these three parts. So basically, feminists are too angry, but envious angry. So not a good anger, too ugly, too humorous. So, um, and I, my argument was oh, I think they're still persisting today, that uh, not, not amongst this room, but sometimes I still meet young women and they say, yes, I still feel people say if I'm a feminist, a strange response. Um, so, but so what? I mean, who cares if feminists are considered humorous? Why am I getting so upset about that? Um, so that took me to thinking about the power of humor. And um, I don't know if you noticed a comedian just became Ukraine's next president. And I don't know if you know the chap who was on the what's it? The, the, the have I got news for you? Suddenly, he's in the newspaper. So 
it's, it's not only in politics at this power that we think of humour as an aphrodisiac. We think of uh, the you know people who write speeches for people uh, for powerful people. There's always jokes. There's bon mot in the House of, 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 House of Parliament. So it's this idea. Umberto Becker referred to laughter as a compelling weapon. So if we if we agree that then uh, Brani Lavery says if we say that women are not funny then. They can't use that weapon. So that women become positioned or feminists become positioned as weaponless in a fight for power. And, and by the way, women, I'm conflating women and feminists because I think it's, it's also this assumption that women have, can't tell jokes, women aren't funny, and that's something else. So then why is that? So to gain power then, how do women, if they're positioned in this powerless, weaponless position in society, how do you create, how do you gain the power back? Uh, is to create humour by forming a group who laugh at your jokes. So in other words, if you've got a room full of feminists and you're telling jokes about uh, feminism that other women or feminists will understand, they will laugh. And as that, uh, as that audience, that new audience grows, it can, it can gain the power. And visually, this includes cartoons and comics. And this, then I saw, was a strategy that has been used historically through feminist activism. And this is where I talk about the activism. So this is, um, a suffrage atelier was a, as a collective of women artists. I think some of them were trained here at the Slade. And um, they produced pictorial uh, protest, and this is perhaps the most famous and loved by us comic scholars because it uses the language of comics, the panels, the language of text. And what the feminists were doing, they weren't laughing at men, at people, they were laughing at the system. So here they're laughing about, they're kind of pointing out how ridiculous is a system where uh, drunkards and prisoners can have the vote but not women. And again, this is how cartoons were uh, later on in the 70s, 80s, this is Griselda. What makes you think you would be a good butt for our sexist jokes? So again, it's a kind of laughing at the system and laughing at how humour works. And this is Rihanna Duncan in Pudge. That's an excellent suggestion, Miss Triggs. Perhaps one of the men here would like to make it. <laughs> and they're very funny and very touching. And here, lovely Jack Flett. So we have agreed to move the magazines which are degrading to women out of the reach of small children. Great. Any idea how old he should be for images degrading to women? 8, 11, 15, 25? Um, so to conclude, how are feminist <coughs> cartoons and humour a form of activism? What's the point I'm making? It's about creating recognition. So those last few cartoons, we laugh because sometimes we might actually find ourselves in those situations. Uh, and once you create re recognition, you can reinforce a group value system. So if an audience gets your jokes and that audience grows, that can start to shape what's funny in society in the wider uh, arena. And that's comedy, but also in cartoons. And also about being thought-provoking. So it's by, by satirising, as satire works, by satirising what is, then it gently provokes the status quo. Oh, and this is to advertise the Alternative Comedy Now Festival next week in Kent for anyone who's interested. Um, and I have a copy of the Indian Woman for later, but it's in my case, so if you want to look.
zu allem. Ja, ähm, ein, äh, ich will mal so sein. Ähm, <lacht> so, I started off um, with a slightly different title. So it was um, How Are Comics Funny? And then I thought, oh, like that's especially in seven minutes, and we, I'm not even going to try that. Let's not keep it tight. And the, um, the comic that I'm going to focus on, so I'm just focusing on one a particular comic, and it's not British, it's American, Nancy. Uh, you might, you might not know it, but it, it, went, uh, it has been produced for a really long time. And I think it's a really good example. So my um, intention is to... Um, to kind of bring the focus to um, the visual aspects, the kind of, the, the really, the how jokes are made um, visually rather than anything else. So that obviously quite a lot has been said and written about comics and, and humour, um, whether that's historical context, there are people who do... Uh, take a cognitive approach, there are people who consider readers in context, there are lots of um, um, good articles, chapters where something is being analysed and, and people draw on the kind of theories that are familiar to anyone who studies any other kind of um, humour related material, so incongruity, satire, superiority, belief and so on and so on. So quite often people will apply those kind of um, Things. But then there's a kind of formal visual analysis, and I tend not to be like a massive proponent of formal approaches when I talk to comics people about comics. However, I felt like this might be um, a good place to make an exception. Um, so a very brief introduction to Nancy. So Nancy is, is a strip that uh, grew out of a, a different strip, uh, also by Ernie Bushmiller, um, published in a lot of newspapers around the world uh, through the sort of uh, system of syndication. So it started off, so Ernie Bushmiller, a young cartoonist working for a um, magazine, took on, or for a, a syndicate, I think, took on this strip from somebody else. It was Fritzy Ritz, um, basically a, a one of many kind of strips of a, I think it was described by someone else as a busy dame kind of strip in the um, 1930s. Uh, and Bushmiller started drawing this um, 1925, 1925, and Nancy first appears in 1933. By 1938, um, the whole power balance has shifted completely, and it's actually uh, Nancy whose strip it is and Fritzi Ritz appears uh, um, as a sidekick, as it were, her aunt. Um, it went on past Bushmiller. So um, the Guy Gilchrist drew Nancy from 95 to 2018. I think I've um, a little veil over his name because I think quite a few people have uh, agreed that that was not the best period of this strip. <laughs> Uh, whereas Olivia James, who's really interesting, has just taken it on quite recently. And she, this is a, um, 
pseudonym and people don't really know who she is. There's a mystery attached to it as well. It makes it even better. But anyway, this is an updated version of Nancy that is now appearing online. Um, so this is a very brief, abridged version of, of Nancy. Decades of the stuff. Daily strips. Um, so going back to Ernie Bushmiller then and his uh, cast of characters. So we got um, Aunt Fritzy, Nancy herself, and then Nancy's got a friend, Paul Sloggo, who is her best pal, sometimes her adversary. Um, he's kind of the kid from the wrong side of the tracks. So if Nancy is living in a kind of nice little suburban home with her aunt, weirdly again, as seems to be the case with a lot of these families, that they don't have a traditional structure of parents and children. They kind of have uncles and nephews and nieces. You know this from Disney as well, right? The family's ducks and mouses do the same thing for some reason. That seems to be like a, a useful thing. I'm sure that more could be said on that, but I'm not going to do that now. And I'm not going to try to get into that. Um, okay. There's a whole book that I've recently acquired that helped me with this. I'm leaning quite heavily on it, but not completely. Uh, there's a book called How to Read Nancy, helpfully. Uh, this is um, Fantagraphics brought it out last uh, two years ago or something. I think it has existed in other forms before. But anyway, um, Paul Karasik and Mark Newgarden in this book they basically deconstruct one strip, the same strip, over and over and over again, and pick it apart and pick it into the various visual elements. And what becomes really apparent, I know that it might seem a bit of a stretch to have this one particular strip that they use, when actually there's so many hundreds and hundreds of different Nancy strips. Um, and they're not all following this exact um, format either. However, what, what it does do, this treatment that they've done, so they, they go through things, they talk about script, they talk about dialogue, they talk about the cast, interesting link to uh, Roger's talk about the, you know, the star turns and the performance element. They talk about background, the staging, the performance, the props and special effects, I love it. So they talk about this hose pipe as a, as a prop and a, and a special effect. But they talk about every single little visual element. And what becomes really apparent through that is that what matters is things like rhythm. And it's the same as a well-crafted joke that somebody can, you know, some people are very good at delivering, but it's, it's a craft and it's about um, delivery, and it's about things like um, timing and rhythm. In the strip, that all happens. I mean, this is the interesting thing about timing and comics, I think, in a way, because on the one hand, people can read a comic at their own pace, or a strip, or a page, or whatever, and that's part of what comics kind of allow for. You can go back and forth, and you can read it. But at the same time, there is a very strong sense of rhythm and pacing and all of those things. It's just that all of that is created visually. Um, 
So, yeah, moving on. These are examples of the fact that uh, there is a certain degree at times in Nancy of social comments. So you've got, um, you know, a bit of a comment here on the sort of cracking down on uh, political dissidents in the Lissy's... Uh, okay, June 20th. I should have made a note of the year, but I'm guessing uh, 50s, right? 50s, 60s? Um, or the kind of what's suitable gendered protocols of behaviour and kind of, um, there is a little bit of that, but on the whole, that's, social commentary is not what Nancy is about. Um, it, um, it's, it's a bit like Peanuts, I suppose, in the sense that this is gentle comedy uh, and set in a sedate suburban world. But what's, what I think is interesting um, about it in this context and why I want to talk about it is really the way that it uses um, visual puns uh, and self-reflexive humour as well. So you could say that actually the way that it's really stripped down, there's links to be made to kind of modernism, I would say, in terms of the um, evenness of lines and the kind of stripping away of anything superfluous and everything is there for a purpose and it's incredibly self-reflexive as well. Um, and... Uh, <coughs> And it does things that I think, so even this joke here with the hose and the sort of reminding her of spaghetti, you know, that's, it's such a simple, short, little, instant thing, and there is nothing much to it, but it's completely predicated on the visual. Here's another one. Um, it's really difficult to, to even imagine how you could, could possibly, I mean, this is, and I keep wanting to say it's literally, but it's obviously not. It's like the wrong word choice altogether because it's literally not literally, it's visually. It is actually, um, it's about the fact that this happens through icons. So it's not literally at all, but it, that's the word that we seem to have for it. But it's, it's about the, it's, the joke comes through the, vis the iconicity. Um, okay, talk about, so, so this is really quite sophisticated, I think, actually, in terms of its language. Simple and sophisticated at the same time. This is what I mean when I say self-reflexive. So here she's asking to... Um, open the window and she's not allowed so she has to come up with something else and that's one thing that Nancy is she's as a character I would say she's very uh, inventive, resourceful kind a bit naughty, you know it's all in the spirit of this gentle comedy but what she does then, when she's not allowed to open the window, she gets the scissors and she actually literally opens up the panel to let some air in, so this is another way, in, in a sense, of breaking the fourth wall, although that's also the wrong um, analogy in, in this case, I think. Um, right, moving on. I like this, because this is kind of a, a jab at what I'm doing right now. Um, 
and this is by James, and this I think speaks for why Olivia James is actually, um, I think, a very worthy follower on. She's, she's changed Nancy a little bit, but that's also appropriate. So this really speaks to what, what I'm doing right now. <laughs> Say no more. Um, and it also speaks to this, this is back to Bushmiller now, so anything can happen in a comic strip. And I think this to me describes how you can have your cake and, and eat it at the same time in comics, and that's brilliant, because you can create this world that's completely credible and totally undermine it at the same time, and it's okay, and it doesn't matter, and it doesn't actually ruin anything. Uh, and I'm going to stop, I'm going to pull it to a close on um, a little gesture towards, because it is actually May the 1st next week, and in this country that's no, no longer a, a national holiday or anything. But Ernie Bushmiller used to, every time it was Labour Day in America, he did make a mention of it, one way or another, and he does this also um, here, yeah. in a very um, kind of neat way.